Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. The following podcast is an interview with Nakchon Rinpoche and Troma Rigsal in Alameda, California in March 2010. Interview questions cover various topics from the book Rays of the Sun. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist Tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. Your generous donations make these podcasts possible. If you wish to make a donation, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help and select Make a Donation. Can those patterns, if they're not liberated permanently, let's say I'm angry as a practitioner and then I practice, do I do some kind of method that I've been trained in and mm-hmm. so the anger dissolves for the moment but then it returns a week later. So then is that is that because of some underlying karma or some underlying pattern that's still there that hasn't been resolved completely? Or oh, certainly. Mm. But, you know, getting rid of a pattern is, is not immediately possible mm. because it's tied into a lot of other things. You can't just remove one bit of it. Mm. You, know. you can't say that, well, my my dualistic condition is actually fine apart from anger. <laughs> uh, because as long as the dualistic condition exists mm-hmm. and anger is part of that, you have to get rid of the dualistic condition. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with getting rid of anger is that you have to get rid of the cause of anger. You can't just get rid of anger, you have to get rid of the cause, and the cause is fear. So you actually have to recognize when the anger arises that you're frightened. If you don't recognize the fear, then you'll never get rid of the anger. You can't really just say, well, it is actually a good idea to restrain your anger, but restraining anger doesn't get rid of it. So you have to confront the fear that gives rise to the anger. Wow, that's back to what you were saying earlier about the four certainties, that we have to understand the cause. And if we do understand the cause, then we're no longer Mm. under the influence of that confusion so strongly. So people create anger in each other because, you know, the angry person who expresses the anger makes me fearful and then I respond with anger that makes them even more fearful mm-hmm. and makes them even more angry. Mm-hmm. And so you get this, what they used to call the balance of terror, you know, the escalation of nuclear weapons, you know, <laughs> the <laughs> overkill. Uh, isn't that an interesting idea, overkill? I, I, I really, you know, when you look at uh, samsara enough, it always becomes ludicrous. I mean, what kind of threat is that? Not only could I kill you once, but I have the capacity to kill you many times over. I mean, once is enough for me. I'm dead, I'm dead. You know, what are you going to do? Keep stabbing me. I mean, I can't feel it anymore. But to think that overkill is a threat is is insane. Why be more threatened by overkill than kill? Mm-hmm. Kill's the end of the story, isn't it? But no, overkill is more of a threat. So 
uh, whenever you push samsara enough in any direction, it betrays itself in ridiculousness of that kind. It becomes Python-esque, you know. So then to deal with that recurring pattern, whatever it is, whether it's anger or depression or self-importance, whatever the pattern is, can only be dealt with in terms of resolving the dualistic habits. Mm -hmm. That's the way. Or by watching um, uh, Faulty Towers. What is Faulty Towers? You know John Cleese? No. Uh, John Cleese uh, put um, created this comedy series about a hotel, uh, a holiday hotel by the coast uh, called Faulty Towers. And the comedy comes out of his um, therapy relationship with um, Robin Skinner. And he discovered so much about psychology during those sessions that um, this comedy series came out of it. He's Basil Faulty who is a very angry man, uh, angry, irritable. He has this terrible wife, and they have a terrible relationship. And he's just so, f it's painfully funny, mm. because he really portrays what it's like, you know, to be a character like that. And the, the funniest part of it is when um, they're organizing this wonderful dinner, and it, it's all going completely wrong people have come to have this gourmet experience and the you know, chef has become suicidal and all sorts of terrible <laughs> things happen. And the dessert is ruined. He has to go out and get another dessert from some other hotel. And he's driving back and his car breaks down. And he's standing by the side of the road with his branch and he's whipping his car, saying, you vicious bastard. You know, he's <laughs> as, you, know <laughs> you can see this guy in this state where, where he's, he's holding his car responsible for breaking down as if it had this intention to ruin his life. You know, you know and you can see how this fear comes up that everything is against me. You know, and um, it's very funny. The, he really plays with that thing well, the, the fear. You know, mm. the, um, yeah. It's a movie? No, it's a, it, it's a series of you know, television slots mm. over a period of time. But if you get a chance to watch it uh, and you have students who are beset by anger, mm. um, it's, it's uncomfortable to look at because uh. you see yourself reflected in it. You know? Great. Um, and even if you don't see yourself reflected in it that much, it's, it's, it's pretty funny anyway. Mm. But, um, I guess the more you see yourself reflected in it, the more you, it, it, it makes people squirm mm. while they're laughing. Because you know, <laughs> they can see, oh, I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like that. Wow. You know, and you see how, how ridiculous it is. And I think one of the most important things really with Dharma is that it trains us to see how ridiculous we are. And it's only when you start to see yourself as ridiculous in terms of your neuroses that you can actually get anywhere. Mm. Being able to laugh at yourself is crucial, really. Mm. You say, oh, here I am doing this again. That's, that's where it starts. He, you know, 
here I am doing this again, where you recognize the pattern. Mm. You think, you know, I'd like to be free of this pattern, but I also recognize that there are bits of it that I still like. Mm. You know, you have that uh, friction between I want rid of it, but it still f seems functional in some way to me. Mm. I get caught up in it. And that really is the, the life of a practitioner. Uh, being frustrated by wanting in and wanting out mm. and just watching that, observing that. What about the story of Milarepa in regards to karma? This is something that is brought up in Rays of the Sun. Mm -hmm. And I remember just within a few pages of that story there is something like the statement that you know, we are we can be free of karma in when we're in non-dual awareness that's freedom from karma it's just gone mm -hmm. and so here is the story of Milarepa who's a practitioner who has who previously was a murderer he murdered over 30 people and so he has according to view this karma of the murders so is that then he goes through it to this training with his lama where he's having to build these houses and I love the way that you describe it that he's the, the way that you describe the story that he's being shown how difficult it is to undo something that one has done because mm -hmm. he has to do these houses and then undo them and return the boulders where he got mm -hmm. them and so what in his situation is it that what if he was in the state of non-dual awareness then he would be free of the karma of those murders is that the correct understanding yes or, and so is it that he had to go through all of these acts because that's what it took for him to get to non-dual uh, awareness or what you have to bear in mind about that story is that it is, it's a story uh, told from a certain perspective uh, it's a story that has a meaning that is a method according to Sutrayana. Mm. So all these stories are, are teachings, and they're teachings which come from a particular uh, principle and function. So here we have you know, the idea of undoing karma mm -hmm. in terms of... Uh, erecting buildings and destroying them and building them again. There are many different layers of meaning in this story. Um, I think if you take the story as truth, then you have a problem with it in terms of relating it to uh, you know, the idea in terms of Dzogchen. Then there's a problem, but the story is a story in terms of Sutrayana, in terms of Tantra. It's not a story in terms of Dzogchen. It doesn't tell a Dzogchen story. There mm -hmm. are different things that do that. But um, here we're uh, looking at um, the whole thing from the point of view of Sutrayana and of, uh, you know, uh, how do you uncrack an egg? You know, you crack the egg, you fry the egg, how do you take it back to being an egg again? And that is a certain perspective 
in terms of our actions, that the principle there is that we are careful of our actions. Because it's far more difficult to undo them than to commit them. But in terms of, say, uh, Vajrayana and the relationship with the teacher, there's another story there in, mm-hmm. in um, knocking these buildings, you know, you know, building, destroying, building, destroying, because every building is bigger than the last one until you get to this nine-story construction that remains standing. But then you find out that Marpa has a dispute with a neighbor who doesn't want him to build anything in a certain place. And the fact that Marpa is luring the neighbor into a certain false security that this is just some spiritual practice that Millerape is building, tearing down, putting all the boulders back to where they were, <laughs> building it again. So he's lulling him into a sense of false security until this nine-story thing goes up, and then it's not torn down. So then you have the problem there of how Millerape views this. It, was this a teaching for me, or was this purely in Marpa's interests, because he wanted a nine-story structure. So he's in this terrible situation of doubt now. What was this? Was Marpa teaching something? Or was Marpa just getting a building and you know, acting surreptitiously about it, you know, in order to get one over on his neighbor? So this is really quite an important story from the perspective of Mahayoga in terms of the relationship with the teacher mm. as what is this that's happening? I have no way of understanding this conventionally. Mm. What do I do with this doubt apart from do I actually have confidence in the teacher or not? Or am I going to judge the teacher according to conventional criteria, or am I outside conventional criteria? What do I make of this? So there's a whole other story there. Mm. And uh, whether this is the reality of Marpa or not, uh, who knows? Why is that important for us to trust the teacher outside of conventional criteria? Well. Let me give the example of my horse riding lessons. Um, It took me over two years to learn how to canter uh, because I'm a klutz. I'm the worst person who ever got on a horse, I think. Uh, I've got no sense of natural balance, um, and so it took a long time. And... uh, I'd finally got to canter one day when um, my teacher, Melissa, thought that we, you know, we're going to do it today. You're almost there. So I'm cantering around. I, I mean, yes, I could, I could sit on a horse and canter, but I'm hanging on to the saddle. You know? <laughs> and so you know, she had me leg wrap. You know? 
and uh, I was going around and she kept calling out, rap, 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 you know, and, um, and she said, I'll tell you when to let go of the saddle. So I'm going around, she says, let go, and I let go and suddenly I was cantering. And I was in there, I was firm in the saddle and, well, not exactly firm, but I wasn't bouncing anymore. And, and um, um, she had to keep calling out for me, well, stop now, you can stop now. <laughs> I was just going around. It was great. And, um, but that decision to let go of the saddle uh, was, had nothing, it was entirely based on my confidence in her as a teacher. There was nothing logical about it. And, you know, the result, have you ever fallen off a horse? No, thank I, goodness. I, I don't advise it. It's not <laughs> no. good, you know. You fall from over five foot in the air. Wow. I know it's onto earth with bits of rubber in it because they try to make it easier for you. Mm. But, but you, you really hit the ground, you know. And if you're over 50, it, hitting the ground is even less advisable over 50. And so, you know, for me to let go of that saddle meant potentially I was going to hit the ground, you know, from a canter, which means you hit it even harder because you come off and the horse is moving, so you've got that speed as well. So, um, so that is outside um, your experience. And what is there to trust? Apart from your relationship with the teacher. So that obviously has to be built up, but it's not as if there's ever going to be something outside that you can trust because you're going beyond ordinary experience. And so the advice you get, the practices you enter are all always a little bit outside your experience. And so you have to develop a level of trust in order to go further. And that's got to be unconventional, because everything that's conventional is understood and reliable. But if you remain within that, and if you're always using your dualistic rationale you know, to judge the teacher, then you're never going to understand anything, because that goes outside your dualistic rationale. So there's, you know, there's, there's that story involved with the story of Miller, April, and Marpa anyway. But mm. in terms of karma, um, I should say that karma um, is not well understood in Buddhism mm. wow. by Buddhists. Um, karma is entirely uh, perception and response. I'd mention in the book um, the Dzogchen view of karma, mainly because I teach karma from the Sutra of the Owl-Headed Dakini. Sutra in this case means text, mm -hmm. uh, rather than sutra mm -hmm. as in Sutrayana. But here is a, a teaching of, of central Sutrayana topics from a Dzogchen point of view. But actually, uh, this teaching of perception response is, is what 
karma actually is within sutra anyway. The whole idea that karma is some kind of bank balance is actually a non-Buddhist idea. But uh, I don't know how many Buddhists actually understand karma as it's actually spoken of in Buddhism. Most people have an eternalistic view of it, or perhaps better, a mechanistic, materialistic view of it, that I have this karma. But the karma is a habit, and when you release the habit, there is no habit. You know, it's not that the, uh, it's not that, that habit is a 300,000 pound habit. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't weigh anything and you, and you can't take a few pounds off it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't put your karma on a diet so there's less of it. The habit is either there or not there. And if the habit is not there, it is entirely not there. And there doesn't have to be any consequence of having had that habit, apart from maybe some of the acts that were based on that habit. But then those consequences are consequences of the world, not of the karma. So. If I, uh, you know, it's, it's often or sometimes maybe the case that some fellow on death row um, you know, goes through some amazing experience and really regrets murder and, and, and regrets their life and makes a complete change, but they still execute him. But that execution is not his karma that's what the particular state imposes as the punishment for that act. But if that person's mind has completely changed, they're no longer a murderer. They're no longer capable of murder because they've changed. So the punishment is just something that's connected with life and how we organize it. Is it sometimes the case that we would need to go, let's say we are the murderer in that story, Milarepa or someone on death row, then the punishment is what allows us to feel finally, okay, now I can change my perception. I'm no longer the murderer. I've, I've paid for it. Or maybe these... No, that's not the punishment. That's the reward. Or the <laughs> <laughs> but the, is it that these kinds of consequences become some symbolic way to, for the person then to shift their perception. Is that... I'm not mean, clear I followed the what question. Is the, if we were to look at the view of... There's this kind of materialist view of undoing karma or paying off karma. Is that from the perspective of karma being our perception and response, then... Is it really that we're doing these acts because we're convinced this is what I need to do in order to Mm -hmm. shift my perception? Whereas could we just go more directly to shift my perception? In a way, are they just accomplishing the same thing, but one's just a more complex route or something? Well, 
Um, I have a feeling that karma being a system of uh, punishment and reward is probably easier for people to understand than the habit is either there or it's not there. I think there's a great fear of the idea that if I'm no longer, if I no longer desire to steal, that I'm not a thief. That I can suddenly lose that, but it's gone. Um, sociologically, I can see that as being highly threatening for a society. Um, I don't think society likes the idea that you can suddenly change. You know, that now I'm no longer the person who did that. That doesn't seem a safe situation from the perspective of society. So I think that in the history of Buddhism, um, there's certainly been a great deal of politics. And um, I think people have a romantic view of history. Um, the emperor of China, for example, uh, chose, I'm not sure which emperor it was, but he chose Buddhism as the religion because he'd reviewed the various religions around the place and he made a choice on that. He said, uh, this is going to be the religion. And uh, I don't really think this was for any uh, religious motive in particular, spiritual motive or inspiration. It simply seemed logical to him, more logical than the others, and it was a system of human governance. So the choice was made on that basis. And various choices were made like that in Tibet, in terms of Vajrayana. Uh, at one point, uh, after the first spread, in, in the early second spread, uh, it was a capital punishment to translate in a tantra. Wow. Which is highly compassionate, of course. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. But, uh, you know, um, so, you know, there is a great deal of, um, of uh, everyday worldly power pragmatics involved in these things. And so I, I think a certain understanding of karma as, um, you know, when you can say, oh, I am rich and you are poor and that is our karma. Uh, you are poor because of all the bad things you've done. I am rich because of all the good things I've done. That keeps a status quo. Mm. Um, you know, you know, you know the idea that you are poor because um, I, my my family and the families of others have exploited you for the last eighteen generations um, so suddenly can you know fade out of view. Wow, interesting. So um, you know there are a lot of things in the your development of how karma is popularly understood, if you look at how society evolves and how society uses religion for its own ends, as not a system of liberation, but as a system of social control. Because if you look at any text on Buddhism, if you look at what the Buddhist academics say about Buddhism, and what the major difference is between Hinduism and Buddhism is this question of karma. Mm. 
And yet, if you look at the two systems now, um, most Buddhists I've ever met have not understood karma from a Buddhist point of view, that it is simply habit. And the idea is to see through the habit, understand the cause for the habit, the spurious advantage of the habit. As soon as you see that the advantage of the habit is spurious, the habit evaporates. And then you're no longer habituated in that way. There was some nun, some Western Tibetan Buddhist nun, at a conference once, at a vet's conference, I was told about this, who didn't believe in euthanizing animals because of uh, the fact that it would disturb, it would interrupt their karma, you know, that, um, and uh, I was asked what, what my view of this was. And I said, well, why be a vet? Why try to cure sickness? Because sickness is karma. It's the result of, and why interrupt that? Now, as soon as you say, well, you shouldn't be a vet then, why be a doctor? Why cure people of illness? Why heat your home in the winter when it interrupts the karma of being cold? The whole thing is ludicrous. You know, Buddhism is supposed to be the religion of logic. Mm-hmm. That's how people usually think of it. And then you look at how people can say this. You know, you know this nun was a Western-educated vet. And somehow uh, the whole logic of Buddhism goes out the window when it comes to karma. When you look at that, well... I'll cure the illness of the creature, but I won't euthanize it because that would interrupt its karma. And, and the failure to understand how that plays back into every other act, well then why cure the illness? Why do anything? Why repair the roof? You know, um, well, there's a hole in the roof. Well, it's my karma to live in a house with a hole in the roof. And uh, so the roof is rotting, and that's also my karma. If I were to repair the hole in the roof, then I'd interrupt my karma. And, you know, this is insane. Um. What about the idea of accumulating merit? That's, that seems to be a pervasive idea. In well, <coughs> If you are not naturally kind (laughs) or not naturally generous, then you're going to need an incentive. Mm. So where there is no natural incentive to be kind and generous, accumulating merit is is a little stick that Mm. pushes you into doing that. But if you don't need that stick, then it's meaningless. You know, uh, from my point of view, um, kindness and generous is pleasurable because I'm a hedonist and I love pleasure. (laughs) So, 
from my point of view, the thing to do is to introduce people to the idea that kindness and generosity is pleasurable. It's pleasurable to see other people being happy. Uh, I think people have some idea of this in terms of their children. I mean, parents are happy when they give their children birthday presents to see their pleasure. You can extend that to everyone. So it's not such an esoteric idea that the happiness of others is pleasure. Obviously, if it's one's own children, I suppose it's self-serving in a way because that's my son and daughter and they're, uh, and they're happy and that makes me happy because they're part of me and etc. But um, at least you have a start there. It is a, a, another being at least, but you can extend that to everyone. You know, you know firstly to friends and you know, to anyone you meet. So maybe an instantaneous merit, that the merit is the experience of doing it, that's the merit that you get. Yeah, the merit is its own reward. Mm -hmm. The generosity is its own reward. Um, you know, there is no other reward. Mm -hmm. Apart from the fact that the reward is endless, it doesn't stop. It's unbounded. Mm 